Hey guys, what is up? We're back with another episode. I'm Ashley and with me always is my partner in crime, Ricky. Hey guys. Our case this week is about 40-year-old Tamala Horsford from Cumming, Georgia. Reports showed that at a party in November 2018, she tragically fell to her death. But friends and family suggest her death may be the result of something much more sinister than an unfortunate accident. After renewed media and attention and the light of other poorly investigated crimes against people of color, Tamil's case may be getting a second look. We are going to recount the events of the night in question as clearly as we know them, but it's difficult to say whether the police truly collected all of the evidence. As time goes on, we might learn more about what actually happened that night in November and hopefully finally know for sure whether we're looking at an accident or a murder. It seems as if no one had a bad thing to say about Tamla Horsford in all of Georgia. She was born in 1978 in St. Vincent in the Grenadines, an island just west of Barbados in the Caribbean. She lived there until she was about 11 when her family moved to the Bronx in New York City. In the early 2000s, Tamala married Leander Horsford in Florida. They had five sons together, and Tamala also cared for Leander's daughter from a previous marriage as her own. At the time of her death in 2018, her youngest son was only four years old. Tamala's friends described her as the life of the party, always up for dancing, she was always hosting a party, and always laughing. According to her sister, she was a super mom for her children. She would always be coordinating their extracurricular activities and taking the boys to football practice, to their games, making dinners, and doing whatever she could do to provide for them. She just did it all. The Horsfords lived in Cumming, Georgia, a small city about 40 miles northeast of Atlanta. It's a town of about 6,000 people in the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. Cumming is located in Forsyth County, one of the most conservative counties in the United States. The Horsfords were one of the few black families living in Cumming, a town that was over 75% white. Because of Tam's outgoing personality, the family had made close friends with their neighbors. In particular, Tamala was very close with a woman named Michelle Graves. In the years following her death, Michelle would become one of Tam's most vocal advocates. Tamala had also met many people through their boys' sports teams. She became close with a woman named Jean Myers as their sons played on the same football team, so they'd see each other often at practices and games. Well, in the fall of 2018, Jean invited Tam to her 45th birthday party she was throwing with some other football moms in town. Tam, who was always up for fun and socializing, accepted the invitation without hesitation. Because they would be drinking, Jean suggested that the women who were attending the party planned on staying the night rather than driving home or having to find brides. Tam didn't spend many nights away from her boys, but she was willing to make an exception for this. 
On the night of November 3rd, Tamela cooked dinner for her five sons and her husband, and Michelle, her neighbor, who was also her friend, stopped by for a bit and the two talked while she cooked dinner. Tam invited Michelle to tag along to Jean's party, but Michelle wasn't very close with the other moms and she declined the offer. Tamela arrived at Jean's house at 8.30 p.m. with a bottle of tequila for the party, but this time most of the other women had already arrived. Other than Jean, Tamela did not know most of the women at the party very well. Jean had originally told everyone that the party was for moms only. However, Jean's boyfriend, Jose Barrera, said he wasn't feeling very well that night and wanted to stay in. He spent part of the night with a man named Tom, who was the husband of one of the women who was at the party. And together they watched the LSU Alabama football game in the basement. All of the 13 people who were at the party that night, Tamla was the only black woman. By all accounts, the guests at the party had a great time. The women drank, ate food, played games, talked, and laughed. Even though Tamala had just met some of the people in the group, everyone seemed happy to have met her. They were impressed with their friendly and social nature, making time to get to know everyone there. In later interviews, a partygoer mentioned that when Tam arrived, she just lit up a room with excitement to change into her pajamas for the night, which she wore a white onesie covered with little gray paw prints. While the other women drank cocktails, Tamala was the only one brave enough to drink the tequila she had brought along with her to the party. Jose and Tom came up from the basement at halftime to join in on the party. The 13 guests made it part of the way through a game of Cards Against Humanity before losing interest in getting caught up in a conversation. Tamala, who was a very proud mom, called to check in on her boys at home and her stepdaughter around midnight. And she video called her daughter who was pregnant at the time to share how excited she was to talk about the new baby. And there were pictures taken that night at the party and videos as well. And those in attendance who took the pictures showed that Tamla was smiling, laughing, and very happy along with the other moms. Multiple guests recalled that during the evening, Tamla had gone outside on the back deck to smoke cigarettes and at one point marijuana. Even though she had smoked and apparently drank much of the tequila, no one at the party said that Tam seemed particularly drunk or intoxicated. In comparison to a few other women who had been drinking heavily at the party, Tamla was composed. Her sister later shared that Tam wasn't one to get sloppy drunk or incoherent and most definitely would not have done so the first time at a party, meeting many of these new people. Around 11 p.m., the party began to wind down. A couple of guests had left a bit earlier, and Jean signaled that it was time for everyone to get ready for bed. Someone helped the drunkest friend up to bed. The two couples headed to the rooms upstairs, and those who weren't staying the night met their rides. And according to Jean, Tamla had asked her to stay up a bit longer as she was enjoying the female company, and it was nice to take a break from all the boys she lived with at home. Although Jean said no, saying that she had to get up early in the morning, and she left Tamla downstairs. By 1.45 in the morning, Tamala and a woman she had met that night named Bridget were the only ones who were still awake. Tam made herself a bowl of gumbo and talked with Bridget while she waited for her husband to arrive. Tam walked her to the door and saw that Bridget got safely into the car before returning back inside the house. Bridget was the last person confirmed to see Tamala alive. 
Jean's house was wired with a security system that sent her phone notifications whenever the front or back doors were opened or closed, and Janine received five notifications that night. The first two showed that the front door was opened and closed at 1.47 a.m., which the police assumed was the time that Bridget left with her husband. The next pair of notifications showed the back door opening at 1.49 and closing again quickly a minute later at 1.50. Police assumed that this must have been Tamla since everyone else had gone to sleep, though it's unclear what would have brought her outside for such a short period of time. Jean's final notification shows that the back door was being opened at 1.57 in the morning, but never being closed. It's during this time that the police assume Tamala Horsford died. At 4.10 in the morning, according to the security system, a guest who had stayed the night got up and left for work. Within the next three hours, three other guests left the house. At this point, four people had left the house, but according to the investigation, none of them had seen Tamala. At approximately 8.45 in the morning, Madeline Lombardi... Jean's aunt, who lived in the basement, woke up and went into the kitchen to make herself a cup of coffee. She had been in attendance at the party, but had gone to bed much earlier than most of the other women there. She recalled that she looked out the window that morning and saw white pajamas with gray paw prints, the onesie that Tamla was wearing that night. Looking closer, she saw Tamla lying in the grass, her head at an odd angle. Fearing the worst, she told police at that moment she dropped to her knees and said a quick prayer. When she looked again, Tamala hadn't moved. She ran upstairs to get Jose Barrera, who was Jean's boyfriend. Jean asked what was going on and Madeline replied, Your friend from the islands is laying in the backyard and she's not moving. Jean, Jose, and Madeline then head outside to see Tamala lying face down in the grass of the backyard. At 8.59 a.m., Jean calls 911. Yes, okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking, and we just went out outside, and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like me. I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. Okay, is she breathing? I, I don't know. I don't know if she's face down. Okay. How, how old is she? At 41. Here, hold on. Hey, this is Jose Barrera. Hey, have y'all checked to see if she's breathing? She's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. Um, okay. I just try to assess her Tesla. She's completely face down in the yard. Um, she is... Yeah. Okay. At this point of the police call, Jean hands the phone to Jose. Police and EMTs arrive at Jean's house at 9.07 that morning, and when they do, they realize that Tamala was dead immediately upon arrival, and they did not attempt to revive her. But Tamala wasn't officially pronounced dead by the coroner's office until an hour and a half later at 10.47 a.m. The police called all the party guests back to the house for questioning and taped off the backyard as a crime scene. This was something far out of the norm in this wealthy suburban neighborhood. 
Pictures of the house showed evidence of the party. Tamla's overnight bag was still sitting in the living room. The tequila bottle was still sitting on the counter, mostly empty. On the porch table was a pack of cigarettes and some cigarette butts. Despite all of the guests saying that Tamla was the only one who was smoking, there were two lighters on the table. Investigators made note of the height of the second-story balcony, almost 15 feet from the top of the railing to the ground. The railing itself was less than four feet. The lead detective on the scene was Michael Christian. He described seeing her sprawled motionless in the grass, with one arm awkwardly bent and the other one lying flat beside her. Her head was face down in the grass, which was rather odd for a fall, why didn't she try to protect her head or her face when she fell? An autopsy was performed on Tamala two days later. It revealed that she had died of severe injuries to her head, neck, and torso. She had bleeding in her brain, broken part of her neck, and suffered a laceration to her heart muscle. In addition, she had scrapes along her shins, her face, hands, and arms. One of her wrists had been dislocated. THC was noted in her system as well as Xanax, and she had a blood alcohol level of 0.238, which is over three times the legal driving limit. These factors, alongside the injuries reported in the autopsy, led the medical examiner to label Tamla's death as an unfortunate drunken accident. But before the autopsy had even returned with its conclusion, police had already begun sharing their primary theory. She had gone outside for one last cigarette before bed and had somehow fallen over the balcony's edge. While the police were confident in their conclusions, things were still not adding up to Tamala's devastated family. No one knew of Tamala taking any prescription medicine to account for the Xanax in her system at her time of death and police didn't find any Xanax in her belongings with her at the party. So when and how did it get into her system? Everyone at the party said that Tam seemed totally fine, not like someone who had such a dangerously high blood alcohol concentration or who was out of control enough to accidentally fall off the balcony. The guests agreed that she was the only one smoking, but two lighters were found outside. And despite many other people sleeping in the house, someone who had gone upstairs less than a half hour earlier, no one reported hearing any noises at all, not of her falling or being outside. Tamala was also found without any shoes, socks, or a jacket on. Her family and friends noticed that Tamla, being from the Caribbean, was always cold and would not have gone outside on a very chilly November night, even for a quick smoke without more layers on to keep warm. Even though she presumably fell face first to her death, little blood or face injuries were reported. While the toxology report and the injuries were enough to convince investigators, these inconsistencies make it difficult for Tamla's family to accept that she died just from a fall. The Horsford family, and later through their attorney, also noted serious mishandlings of the case by police and investigators. While on the phone with 911, Jose Barrera was witnessed touching Tamla's leg and back and moving her arm. This was written off as him attempting to see if she was breathing. What's odd about this, though, is Jose Barrera was involved in law enforcement as a pretrial officer and had been trained in things like CPR and preserving evidence. 
With all of this training, why would he check on her leg and move her body? Jean's house also had a relatively intense security system, which included those phone alerts and security cameras. Unfortunately, the cameras aimed at the balcony had dead batteries and were not recording on November 3rd. As soon as he was on the scene, Michael Christian, the primary investigator, initially began to spread the theory that it was a ground-level fall that had killed Tamala, going so far to even tell Tamala's father that this was her cause of death. In making these claims, he was only speculating as the results of the autopsy were not yet known. But by sharing these theories, the case assumed the same focus rather than investigating all possible scenarios. Because police immediately assumed it was an accident, no fingerprints were taken, and key exams during the autopsy were not conducted, such as a sexual assault exam. The partygoers who were called back to the house to share their stories were not interviewed separately or in isolation as is typical procedure, allowing time for them to talk to one another before speaking to the police. During the first round of interviews, Jean interrupted to give the police involved a Dunkin' Donuts gift card for their help. These breaks in procedure may have prevented the full truth of the night from coming to light. When more information returned from Tamla's autopsy, Michael Christian shifted his theory to it being a second-story fall rather than it being a ground-level fall. But even certain women at the party didn't see this making any sense. Stacy, the woman who spent the night with her husband, Tom, shared disbelief, saying that she had seen John's balcony hundreds of times and has even tested theories about how Tamla could have fallen off. But none of them seemed likely to her. Members of the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office also had personal friendships with some of the women at the party and their husbands, leading people to speculate if these relationships had led investigators to look away or look less closely at Tamla's death. Of course, the Sheriff's Office has denied these claims, citing that they are always impartial. But in such a small town, you have to wonder, between the mishandling of evidence and the interviews, biased investigation, and the inconsistencies between the reports of Tamla's character and the toxology report, it's understandable that concerns have been raised. The most alarming of errors in this whole investigation came to light, though, a few months later, in February of 2019. Jose Barrera, the pre-trial officer and boyfriend of Jean Meyer, is fired after using his credentials to get into the incident report and records for Tamla Horsford's case. Some were willing to write this off as just a morbid curiosity on Jose's part, but so many more suspected Jose had some personal motivation for looking into the case, seeing what police knew, and some even suggested that he tampered with the evidence and is involved in some sort of police cover-up. Jose's actions came to light as a result of another case related to the incident between Michelle Graves, Tamla's close friend and neighbor, and the Forsyth 12. The current popular name for the 12 people who attended the party at Jean's house. Michelle was being sued for defamation as she had posted multiple things online accusing Jose, Jean, and others at the party of being responsible for Tamla's death. The lawsuit was later dismissed, but tensions haven't lessened. The Forsyth 12 aren't the only ones who have experienced harassment. Those who believe in foul play or investigative misconduct 
was involved in Tam's death have also received their fair share of hate from those who believe in Jose, Jean, and the others, and the innocence of the county sheriff's office. Despite the calls by many for continued investigation into Tamla's death, Jose Barrera, using his status to accept private records and the inconsistencies pointed out surrounding the events of November 3rd, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office decided to close Tamla's case and maintain that her death was a tragic accident. In the time since the horrible night when Tamala died, the Horsford family had worked to cope with their grief in relative silence. But with the recent rise in conversations surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement and the mishandling of police investigations involving persons of color, Tamala's name has come up as an example for how police work often fails Black people of America. In the last few months, petitions to reopen Tamla's case have gotten over half a million signatures. With larger national support and time to cope with their grief, the Horsford family is also finally speaking out. They hired a lawyer named Ralph Fernandez who published a statement saying that in his review of the evidence, it reflects a strong possibility of homicide. He mentions that many of the same inconsistencies as we shared before, particularly the handling of Tamla's body before investigators arrived by Jose Barrera and his accessing of the case files. He also says that no photos were taken during her autopsy, which is completely unheard of. And he speculates that this must have been done due to someone's directive. He also notes problems with the medical examiner's findings. The letter states that the scrapes on Tam's legs, hands, and arms may not have been from her fall, but they suggest that she was involved in a struggle. And the single x-ray that was taken, the injury that the coroner said caused her death, cannot be seen at all. He ends his letter by sharing that 80% of cases where black people die under mysterious circumstances end up closed early or go cold without clear video evidence. And even then, mishandling of the case by police investigators, intentional or not, makes finding the truth even harder. Fernandez's letter is powerful, and it got enough attention that on June 12, 2020, the Forsyth County Sheriff, Ron Freeman, asked the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to reopen and re-examine Tamla Horsford's case. While this is a huge win for the Horsford family, there still remains concern as these are the same people who investigated her death in 2018. Would they still be willing to search for the truth now? Some petitions have switched their calls to have the FBI take over the case to avoid personal bias and influence Sheriff Ron Freeman and members of the Georgia Bureau investigation might have. With Tam's case finally being reopened, we hope that the truth will finally come to light. Perhaps her death was just a tragic accident. Maybe it was a malicious racially motivated homicide, or even yet, maybe it was something in the middle, an accident that resulted in a cover-up with mishandling of evidence. Whatever the truth may be, the Horsford family and Tamla deserve answers and a clear and honest investigation. If you believe that Tamla's case should be handled by the FBI rather than the GBI, which may have a personal stake in keeping the truth hidden, you can find the link to the petition on our website at crimesellandpodcast.com. As we learn more details about the night of November 3rd, we will be sure to keep you posted and we hope that justice for Tamla Horsford will be found soon. 
However, this concludes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening to Crime Salad Podcast. We'll see you next time. Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, love, all the pain.